Slavery. It is a word steeped in history, but not as these stories will testify in the past. In 2019, I was at an event in the Cork Courthouse, the exact location where in 1845 Frederick Douglass, an American social reformer, writer and statesman, who was also an escaped slave, spoke. In the background you can hear Anne Mara, who presented at this event. But one of the speeches he gave actually occurred in this very courtroom. Slavery is so gigantic that it cannot be coped with by one nation. Hence, I would have the intelligence and humanity of the entire people of Ireland against that infamous system. The following year, I was on a webinar held during the COVID-19 pandemic, listening to J.P. O'Sullivan speak. So the numbers of those caught in worlds of human trafficking have always been suggested to be just the tip of the iceberg. Those victims of trafficking have always been what we refer to as hidden in plain sight. So walking around us in communities and working alongside us, perhaps, members of our own towns and villages. But when we look at pandemics like COVID-19, those people are no longer, as we refer to, hidden in plain sight. They're quite simply out of sight. COVID-19 transformed our world, how we communicate and how we live. The words spoken in 1845 by Frederick Douglass, reenacted in a crowded courthouse in Cork, and the words spoken via Zoom during a global pandemic 175 years later, they speak of a world that has not changed. The world of slavery, modern slavery, which is also known as human trafficking, the term used more commonly in Ireland. In our world today, there are now more people enslaved than there were when Frederick Douglass spoke. Well, when we look at the global number, it's estimated over 40 million people suffer in human trafficking and modern slavery today. If we think of the times of the transatlantic slave trade, which were shocking times, during the two centuries, there was about 15 million people in slavery. So the problem is worse now. This is Kevin Highland, OBE. In 2014, he was appointed by Theresa May as the first independent anti-slavery commissioner in the UK. Prior to that, he was head of the London Metropolitan Police Service's Human Trafficking Unit. Kevin moved back to Ireland, where his family was originally from. He was appointed as the Irish representative of the Council of Europe's Group of Expert on Action Against Trafficking in Human Beings, Greta. Kevin knows the stark reality of the crime of human trafficking, a crime that, according to the UN, is the fastest-growing criminal activity in the world. Trafficking is about uh, being moved, being kept, being harboured, being recruited for the purpose of exploitation, which can be forced labour, domestic servitude, uh, forced criminality, uh, it can be uh, sexual exploitation, or on some cases, and thankfully this doesn't happen in Ireland, for people's organs. So there's so many things that human trafficking is connected to. It's a gender issue, because 70% of the traffic victims are women. That goes up to 92 or 3% when it's sexual exploitation. As an Irish person, I find it hard to comprehend that human trafficking is happening in Ireland. But it is. 
It is a crime hidden in plain sight and it will never be dealt with unless we learn to see it. And that's, that's it. It's in front of us. But if you don't know what you're supposed to be looking for, then you won't see it. But if we turn it back to here in Ireland, I have met women who have been trafficked into and within Ireland and used as a commodity. The people controlling them have often been Irish people. The people using the services have been Irish people. There is evidence of um, human trafficking occurring in every village, in every town across the island of Ireland. And I don't think we know exactly how prevalent it is because it is very much a hidden crime. We have now turned people into a commodity and that generates income and profit to 150 billion US dollars a year. So it's a lucrative business. Arms and drugs can be used once, but a person can be used over and over and over again, um, which makes it such a, for those who want to exploit, a very attractive industry to be part of, aside from the, the huge amounts of money that can be generated. The outlay for your product is low, but they can be used again and again and again. There's commodities. Yeah. Bought and sold. And they're still bought and sold. We haven't an idea, Patricia, and I haven't either, you know, of the, of the enormity of this. This is Sister Mary Ryan. She's one of the founders of the Irish charity Mechpats, which I'll tell you about in a moment. JP and Anne run the charity, and they have worked for decades in the area of social care and development, both here and overseas. Through their work, Mary, JP, Anne and Kevin have met and worked with people who have been trafficked. Later, you'll hear from women who are survivors of this abuse. They shared their stories, so we know these victims of this hidden crime as people. People who have been turned into commodities to be bought and sold, who are also just children, women, young boys, a little girl, a sister, a brother, a mother. Um, I had worked for a number of years in Southeast Asia. Um, I'd worked with children and adults who'd been trafficked. And I had seen the damage that trafficking could do far beyond that period of being trapped in slavery, learning of people's stories who were trafficked and when they were rescued, not being able to go back to their own families because of the shame that was attached to it listening to stories of young people who, whose lives had been moulded in such a way that they believed that the bottle of Coke that they were getting at the end of a day in a brothel um, was a fair payment. And I know from working overseas that human trafficking and child trafficking is on the rise. It's one of the fastest growing criminal industries in the world. Ireland, again, is not immune to it. And again, it's, it's about the awareness. Um, it's about having conversations. Maybe it's an Irishness that we don't like to talk about the, the elephant in the room, but we need to talk about it. There are many charities working hard to get us to talk about it. Charities in Ireland, such as Cork Against Human Trafficking, Rahama, APT, ACT to Prevent Trafficking, and MacPats. 
these charities work in unison to raise awareness about human trafficking. But the one you're going to hear about is MECPATS. It is a simple programme, not rocket science, as they would say themselves. But it is working. MECPATS works with the hospitality industry, an industry familiar to us all for holidays and work. Hello. MECPATS, which stands for Mercy Efforts for Child Protection Against Trafficking in the Hospitality Sector, is a not-for-profit organisation that provides training programmes in anti-human trafficking with a particular focus on child trafficking for the hospitality industry, working in partnership with hotel groups, hospitality training colleges and universities. At first you might wonder, as I did, about the connection between the hospitality industry and human trafficking. But when you listen to these stories, that becomes clear. The hospitality sector is addressing it head on in a way that we can all learn from. And it begins with awareness, opening our eyes to see the harsh reality of this evil. I would say that's our number one obstacle to overcome is to overcome the perceived idea that child trafficking is something that happens overseas and not here in Ireland. MECPATS um, was a programme that was designed to work in collaboration with the hospitality industry in Ireland. And we do know that hospitality staff are amongst those frontline professionals most likely to encounter a victim of child trafficking. So from international reports, it's been very clearly outlined that hotels can be the second most popular destination for traffickers to bring a victim of trafficking. Um, I guess there's the privacy, the anonymity. In Europe, I think alone, over 83,000 people are identified um, as being victims of trafficking and located within hotels across Europe. In the US at present, there are a number of cases emerging of people who are now adults who were trafficked as children um, through the hospitality industry. And one particular person knowing that the staff knew that there was something happening to her, but did nothing. So she went back as an adult and successfully sued the industry at the hotel group. Now, it has come full circle and this is why I am so happy and that we uh, started MacPats. Now that the survivors are taking cases against the hotels. But I think in Ireland, the way we've positioned ourselves is that we're preventative rather than reactive. Um, so offering, I guess, our skill sets, our education programs, our trainings to, to hotels to be prepared rather than to be the institutional, I guess, responders that we've seen in the past where blind eyes were turned. Don't interfere. Yeah, none of your business. Absolutely. All the cliches. Yeah. And it's not like we haven't experienced that in Ireland before. Um, those curtains need to be twitched a little bit more in Ireland. Um, the conversation needs to be had. When we provide this presentation to staff, they do go away feeling like they actually have a part to play in countering child trafficking. Whereas before we came into the room, they wouldn't have even considered themselves having any involvement or potential way in which they could help to counter it. 
So our training um, sessions open with a very general overview of what human trafficking is. Then we explore what child trafficking is. So I was going to just speak to you to introduce to you the topic of child trafficking. Basically, on a global level, the main types of exploitation or human trafficking we see is sexual exploitation and labor exploitation. 80% of all victims of human trafficking are women and girls. And most stark, and the reason why we exist, is that one in four victims of human trafficking are children. So what about Ireland? What about our context here? It's certainly in Ireland. There's no part of the world that isn't touched by this. In Ireland, there are relatively low numbers identified, and that doesn't reflect the true issue here. It means that low numbers are being identified. Uh, it is known that the figure is much higher. It is widely accepted that these numbers are literally the tip of the iceberg. Why is that? Because identification of victims is so incredibly difficult, which is why raising awareness helps people understand about the issue, to be eyes and ears on the ground, and therefore helps with the identification of potential victims. To identify um, a situation as a, a case of human trafficking, there has to be three elements present. There has to be an act, a means, and a purpose. And then there's a set of things that have to happen, which is coercion, control, uh, exploitation of vulnerability. We do mix up smuggling and trafficking. Uh, what you need to remember with trafficking is it's very different to smuggling. For example, with trafficking, you don't need a border. And in last year's numbers uh, that are reported by Ireland, there was an Irish person trafficked in the UK. In the figures last year, there were four Irish children trafficked. So you do not need a border. Also, if you look in Ireland, the majority of traffic victims are EU nationals. So when there is a component of an act, a means and a purpose, that is a case of human trafficking, except in cases of children. So the act and the purpose only need to be present when a child is um, to be considered a victim of trafficking. Um, so the movement of a child for the purpose of exploitation, the concepts of fraud or coercion are disallowed because a child is not at the same developmental stage as an adult psychologically to be able to understand what coercion or fraud are. I guess in practical terms, if a child is moved from one room to another for the purpose of exploitation, that's trafficking. So what is the type of exploitation we see in this country? By far, the most prevalent form of human trafficking in this country is sexual exploitation. And I'll tell a story. In 2014, um, there was a, a Romanian criminal gang at work, and they were trafficking girls from Ro Romania to this country for the purpose of sex trafficking. In this particular case, a guy got in contact with a 19-year-old girl in Romania. And they called her and offered her a potential job to come and work in Ireland. And they said that they would pay her flights over and put her up in accommodation, set her up with a job in a hotel, so that when she started making money, then she could pay back what she owed them. 
This girl had no reason to believe that there was anything untoward in that and they booked her flights and she believed she was coming over to avail of an opportunity that would help better her life and the life of her family members. So she arrived into Dublin and was picked up by this individual who took her passport, said he needed it to get her set up with with a work permit or whatever. He proceeded to drive her to an apartment in Dublin where she was beaten and gang-raped into submission, was then put into a car, driven across the country, and checked into a hotel in Sligo Town. Now, that girl was kept in that hotel for seven days, and there was frequent uh, visitors to and from the room she was staying in. Her trafficker never left her side, And it wasn't until the end of the seven days that one of the staff members just said, no, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong. And they went to their manager and then together they reported to the guardie. The guardie came to the scene and they were quickly able to determine that this girl was actually a victim of sex trafficking. But I often think what would have happened had that staff member not voiced his or her concerns? that girl would have just been moved from one place to another, which is a very common story all across this country. And we would very much maintain that if staff are, number one, made aware of the possibility of a incidence of child trafficking taking place on their property and know the indicators and what to look out for should something ever occur. I think one of the most exciting things about the presentations we do, especially when we're speaking to staff members of hotels, is that you can tangibly see the light bulbs going off and people um, who are listening to the information that we're presenting. Um, especially when we get to the indicators and a lot of times um, staff will say at the end my goodness we had seen something we had that particular thing happen and well you know I didn't know what to do so I did nothing. Um, But the the indicators are and we would say it ourselves it's not rocket science we walk through very clear indicators things that will help people working within the hotel industry to identify a child that may be at risk Non-registered guests visiting a particular room with high frequency. So that girl that was in Sligo, there was foot traffic in and out of her room at all hours of the day and night. If the guest has no or few personal possessions for a prolonged stay, this girl had nothing with her. If a guest appears to be with a significantly older boyfriend or in the company of older males. If the room is paid for with cash or a preloaded credit card. Now, these indicators are different to the indicators I would have spoken to your colleagues in accommodation about. Different staff within the hospitality industry will be exposed to different indicators. So it can vary depending on where the person is working within the hotel, but from conversations with staff, you know, housekeeping, I guess, have the the greatest opportunity to identify because they're in, in the room for a little bit longer. We would say to those working in accommodation, if they notice um, a large presence of computers or IT equipment in a room where a child is staying, if the do not disturb sign is used um, consecutively over 
two or three days and staff are not allowed entry into the room where children are staying, that is a red flag. If there is increased requests for fresh towels and fresh bed linen, and what we say is that you cannot take one indicator in isolation, but when there are a number of indicators present and I always place emphasis on our gut instinct. And I think we all have that ability to know when something is wrong. Um, And when you get that feeling, it's really being able to to do something with that feeling and to to respond accordingly. It's the responsibility of the Gardaí to respond to any suspicions. But it's up to the, the staff in the hotel and the management to report anything that feels out of order. And... Late in 2019, we worked very closely with the Gardaí to develop a reporting protocol because I guess it's like anything in life, you know, it's one thing knowing, but it's another responding. Um, So the Gardaí helped us to build very clear reporting protocol that will support hotel staff to report directly to the Gardaí. And also fortunate that a lot of the training is now moving to online platforms because with MECPATS, there are only two staff. And so human resources are limited. But with online training, the the outreach is, I guess, it's getting out there. Megpats have worked with the hospitality industry in developing an online programme for around 60,000 members of the hospitality industry. They are now developing virtual classroom-style training. So when you log on, you will hear the same training programme outlining the indicators and reporting obligations. It's important to understand about responsibilities um, when you're responding. So under Section 2.1 of the Criminal Justice Act of 2012, um, you may not be familiar with it, but it makes it an offence for anybody who knows um, that an offence has taken place against a child or has been committed by another person against a child, or even that it's about to be committed against a child. It makes an offence for for any of us um, not to respond or to disclose that information to Angarda Shiakana. We often are asked questions by you know your, your colleagues in the sector about what happens if I respond or what happens if I ring the guards and I'm wrong. And it's important to remember that under Section 3 of the Protection for Persons Reporting Child Abuse Act of 98, everybody's protected if you're responding or reporting reasonably and in good faith. So whether the training is delivered in person or virtually, the message is the same. And we also say... What's the worst thing that can happen? You can report a suspicion. The worst thing that can happen is that you're wrong. The best thing that can happen is that you actually save a child from a lifetime of exploitation and slavery. And that is the end of our um, presentation today. Now, I would love to take questions, so I'm going to ask Patricia to turn off so that you have anonymity. And these are difficult conversations to have. I met via Zoom with Sarah Marr, Group Human Resource Manager for the Prem Group Ireland and the UK. This hotel and hospitality management company has the anti-trafficking training programme mandatory for all of their staff. It's difficult for our industry to even talk about it, you know, to even consider that this could be happening in a property that, that you're working, I mean, it's, it's really hard to actually even go there and having, thinking that that could be happening. And I think that sort of puts people off even doing the training, but people are always shocked. 
you know, I, I can see in people's faces when we have conversations about this for the first time, they feel the same way as I felt when I was talking to the MECPATS uh, team the first time. I would have thought that there was very much a distant crime that was going on. I, I would have thought that it was sort of more prevalent in poorer countries and people that you feel maybe more vulnerable to exploitation. I thought, I didn't think that it would be something that would be going on in, in Ireland under our noses. I mean, we say this is the training course that we hope you're never going to have to use. I feel lucky that I don't think we've had to put it into action in any of our properties. But that doesn't mean that you don't do the training and that you're not aware. Um, but we have everyone doing it. We have our chefs doing it, our greenkeepers in, in the hotels. Like basically, you know, so we make the argument that if, you, if you're coming to work, you know, you could be in the car park. When you're starting your shift, you could park your car and you could notice something that, that if you hadn't done this course, you wouldn't, you wouldn't notice. The response from the hospitality industry has been superb. And MacPads are now extending their training programme to other sectors. Um, and we've recently developed a partnership with Maynooth University, whereby myself and JP will be helping to design and teach a two-day module for social policy and social work students at Maynooth University, but it's the first of its kind to ever take place. And it will be a programme then that can be replicated um, at other universities for other social work students across the country. Because this is an area, like I said at the beginning, that is growing. And we need to equip our frontline professionals in knowing um, the indicators, knowing the bigger picture around human trafficking. So I think the more people that are trained, the better, because that's the more eyes out to spot the signs and, and the more protection for people who unfortunately find themselves in, in difficult situations and are being exploited. That this really should be something that, as citizens, we should all be making ourselves aware of. Um, I think in Ireland, people don't know about what human trafficking is, don't know that it can be... The person who works in their local garage may have been trafficked. The person who works in the local nail bar may have been trafficked. Well, we actually all have a huge responsibility to, to play. and But we need to open our eyes. Ireland is not achieving international standards on what is a human rights issue, as well as a criminal justice issue. Ireland is a signatory to a number of international conventions and protocols. And there is the United Nations that is committed to fight human trafficking. And there is commitments that nations have signed, including Ireland, in order to address this. And those are not being implemented. And at the moment, you know, Ireland has been downgraded at the international standards to what is called a tier two, which means it's not meeting the international standards that are expected of a country like Ireland. The US State Department has been given the role to evaluate all UN nations on their performance, which means you need to be able to identify victims, support them, uh, give them uh, the protection they need under international agreements. You need to positively investigate crimes. So there are tiers, which is one, two, and then two watched, and then three. Well, tier one means you are meeting the minimum standards. Then there's tier two, which says you're failing and you're not meeting those standards, but you're trying. And then there's tier two watched and tier three. 
So Ireland is on tier two. It was on tier one, but it's slipped back to tier two over the last three years. Now that for a country like Ireland is shocking. There are countries like Pakistan that are tier two. I think until the prevalence of child trafficking and human trafficking is acknowledged in this country, the right amount of resources will not be put into addressing the problem. Both things have to happen at the same time, but the education piece and the raising of awareness around this issue is so vitally important. Because right now it sucks. If somebody is recognised as a potential victim of trafficking in this country, they have to make a decision. So, for example, that girl I spoke about from Romania who found herself trafficked in that Sligo hotel for the week, when she was rescued by the Gardaí, she was given a choice of two things. She could either stay in the country with rest and ref reflection period of 90 days where she would have access to healthcare and legal aid and accommodation and food, etc. To make a point on the accommodation that's offered to potential victims of trafficking in this country are direct provision centres, which are entirely unsuitable places for potential victims of human trafficking. They've already undergone such trauma in their lives and then to be put into a situation where they may have to share a room with three other women or three other men is just wholly unacceptable. Many would say that the experience has arisen where a victim of trafficking will be taken to direct provision, will be shown to their bedroom and their, their trafficker is already in direct provision. Um, so there's a huge risk of them being re-trafficked again. But the choice is either to stay for that reflection period and decide whether or not to provide testimony that would be brought to court in a, in a legal case against their trafficker, or they would be repatriated home. So if you take this girl, 19-year-old, who had been brutally sexually assaulted over the span of a week in a hotel room in Sligo. And the guards are saying, you can stay here and have access to immigration, but you'll have to testify against your trafficker, or you can go home to your family. It doesn't surprise me that that girl chose to go home immediately. And this crime is happening in Ireland. It's happening to 40 million people around the world. And yet prosecutions and convictions equate to a 99.98% chance of getting away with this crime. We can talk about human trafficking in a very complex way. We can talk about it in legal terms. We can talk about it of departments failing. But let's talk about it in human terms. Let's talk about when I've been around the world and I've met young girls who have been moved from Eritrea down through the Lake Chad Basin 
into Libya and kept for three months in what's called connecting houses. When they're in those 14 and 15 year old girls, they are raped every day, sold for prostitution, sometimes 20 times a day. Then when they've been used enough and they've earned enough money, they are then given a seat on a dangerous vessel that then goes across the Mediterranean. And one girl I met and spoke to, she was telling me how she saw dead bodies in the sea. And then she arrived in Italy and I saw her three or four weeks after she'd arrived and she was still in an immigration type centre. She didn't know what was happening. And she could have ended up anywhere in Europe. A brothel in London, a brothel in Dublin. Because that's where she was destined for. And I met boys in the same situation, in the same places, who had been promised contracts with big Premier League football teams or First Division in Europe, who were going to earn millions. And they really believed it but they were also destined for sexual exploitation in Europe. Boys of 14 and 15 from Nigeria. These are children. Children like Maya, who's a survivor of child trafficking. Maya, which is not her real name, shares her story on a global stage so that we can know the reality behind the statistics. I am fortunate enough to say that I am a survivor and no longer a victim to modern slavery, a title that I do not take lightly, knowing how long it can take from someone to go from being a victim to a survivor. However, at the age of 10, I was groomed by a British gang in the south of the UK. By the time I reached 12, I found myself in the sex industry through no choice of my own. It wasn't until... It just before I was 20 years old that I got away. Far too long. 2005 to 2013, I was just a statistic, a number within the figure of potential victims of trafficking. However, I was never a number. I was a child and I was a person and being sold to around a minimum of 17 men a day. I spent so many years expecting that my life was never ever going to change. My childhood didn't exist. Even during my year eight school trip to France, my traffickers had arranged for me to work throughout the night while everyone else slept. I cannot begin to tell you how often I as a child was invisible to everyone who was meant to be able to be there to care for me and to see me. Many times I was taken out of this country or locked in basements and rooms with nobody noticing that I was gone. I truly believe that I could have died at any one moment and, I would, and it would have taken so long for anybody to see. And sadly, I was not the only one to experience this. You've heard the statistics. Over 40 million people victims of human trafficking in the world today. And the most common form is sexual exploitation. And the majority of those are women and children. So no... Sadly, Maya is not the only one. Mary Ryan, who you met at the beginning, now in her 80s, Mary has worked for decades with women who have been trafficked. Yes, I know it's so real. It's so real. And people don't understand it. Do you know? 
don't think we can comprehend it. No, you can't. Oh. No, you can't. Oh. That is true. Mary, along with co-founding MacPats and APT, also worked for years with Rahama, an Irish NGO and registered charity that offers nationwide support to women affected by prostitution, sex trafficking and other forms of commercial sexual exploitation. I never wrote any of this and it's a shame, I know, but anyhow, I feel too near it to, to write it, something like that. And I've never given an interview. Have you not? No. Oh, okay. Mary worked on the Rohama outreach van at night, meeting the women who were working as prostitutes. Uh, I continued to work after being on the outreach van as a befriender. Now I'm going backwards and forward. And I am a befriender. and that, That's what gave me a lot of experience. The first girl that I befriended was a Lithuanian young woman Third level college shop winding one evening was picked, abducted. Now, we don't hear a lot of abductions today. That doesn't seem to be the way the traffickers work. She was abducted, sent to Ireland. Her photograph was here before her uh, at the airport. She was picked up. She was taken to a group of her own countrymen who were here. And she was gang raped. She was with me for a while and still going to, you know, Ruhama, um, getting um, therapy and so on. My heart went out to her. Um, I would take her out and take her to the sea or, you know, take her to a cinema. You know, I, I didn't know any more. I never asked, you know, we wouldn't ask them any questions. If a woman wants to talk, she can talk. Now, one thing she told me, and it was a lesson I learned and that I would see over and over again, her terror was, it was terror, that her mother and her sister would be also abducted if she didn't comply. That's the threat from traffickers. Mary also ran a safe house for women rescued from trafficking in Ireland. And uh, this became a safe house now, we don't do that work now because the department changed their mind and they would have other places. That a lot of them go to direct provision, which is, I won't go there. I would have visited direct provision centres as well in all of this work. The guardie would do a raid. I would be informed, would you have a place tonight for a girl or two? And... Uh, they're coming from Manahan or they're coming from Sligo or, yeah. And uh, we would prepare and have the place ready for them and so on. And usually a band guard, uh, I don't think he used that term either today, <laughs> to a guard would bring the girl stricken, eyes down, weary, terrified. And she often sat in the chair there or here give her a cup of tea, you know, and... How many women would have come? Well, we'd, we would have had about 22 or 3, we have, you know, counted. That's only... Oh, the tip of the iceberg. So that would be why I would, you know, know so much about them, because they sit in the sitting room. In this 
cosy, homely sitting room. An ordinary house in the suburbs that has provided safety for young girls, all with different backgrounds and stories, but all subjected to the same evil. She was only 14 when she was here. and uh, 14, like a little kid. 14, she was picked up off the streets. Kid. And she was miserable looking. Oh, Seth. You know, she was hungry. I had to bring her to the doctor several times and so on, to gynecologists and to the matter because of her whole experience in trafficking. Because of the abuse and rape she has endured, she will never be able to have children. Because of all she had gone through with... They're the, what would I say, the intimate stories that you hear. Oh, she's... Yeah, the little kids, and if you saw the size of them, petite, lovely, your heart would just go out to them. What is their future? Will they, you know, ever get over this? And it doesn't just involve children being trafficked into Ireland from other countries, um, but it does involve Irish national children also. Um, I'm UN definition, but not what Irish people would expect or would imagine when they think of a trafficked person. Hazel Larkin, writer, teacher. She runs trauma-informed care for healthcare professionals. Hazel shares her story widely. I tell my story because every time I do, I'm contacted by other people who say, I thought I was the only one. And I know that abuse thrives on secrecy and shame. I was trafficked by my father when I was a very young child. Um, My first memory of being trafficked, I was four. I was in my school uniform and I remember the feeling of being very proud that I had my school uniform. I was delighted with myself and I was thrilled because I was a big girl now, all four of me. Um, But I do remember being picked up by my dad after school, which was in and of itself unusual because he very rarely had anything to do with the children. And I remember he took me to somebody else's house where there were three other men and himself and they took turns abusing me. And I remember snatches of of what happened and and I had vague recollections of other times of being moved around and to be abused by men but in my mind I thought oh well they're just they were just one-offs that wasn't a regular occurrence and to try and minimize it for myself in my own head until I was in a relationship recently and of course as somebody who has researched a lot of trauma and you know it's what my PhD research is in I'm aware that that trauma or traumatic memories can often reveal themselves when you're in a, a safe place. Um, and I was in a relationship and I remember just before I dropped off to sleep one night having a whole series of memories just crashing into my into my conscious awareness of being trafficked on many, many occasions. And, and part, part of me said to myself, ah, but you knew that really. You knew there was never, there's never a one-off. It's never just now and again, and then you can't be bothered as an abuser. You know, abusers abuse until they get caught or until, in my case, I think I just got too old. You know, by the time I was five I was, I was, or, or six, probably, I was, I was just too old for them to be concerned with me anymore. And also there may have been the, the, the possibility that I would have spoken out or, you know, they would have got caught. So they would have moved on to another child. 
Do you remember when JP said, we need to twitch those neck curtains? We need to become more aware. We need to open our eyes. Interfere. Get stuck in there. Be the nosy owl one. Would that have made a difference? Yes. Yes, it absolutely would have made a difference. If one person ever had stood up and stood up for me and said this child matters enough to be removed from a situation where she's being abused on a daily basis that would have changed my life immeasurably and it never happened and people knew when I hear those stories It brings shame on me that that is going on. And then when we think about Ireland in the famine and you read the stories of what happened to the Irish who landed in Liverpool and the many that died, the many that ended up in forced labour, sleeping in cellars, dying. That's all happening now. This is another opportunity as a country that has advanced to use that experience, to use that knowledge, to use its compassion and its culture to make global change. It started with the speech by Frederick Douglass mm-hmm. and the heartbreak is that that was 175 yeah. years ago. Yeah, and I think, you know, if Frederick Douglass was back in Cork um, today... Looking around, he would probably be repeating a lot of what he'd said then. My friends, you yourselves can cheer the heart of the slave by making every pro-slavery man feel the strength of your opposition to slavery. I am here but to urge the right of every man to his own body, to his own hand, and to his own heart. Do Disturb is a curious broadcast production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Produced and narrated by Patricia Baker. Edit and final mix, Jerry Horn, Contact Studio. Music by Una Keen from our album In the Deep.